God, I pray this morning that you would fill us with an awe and a wonder at your sovereign rule and power. God, I pray that you would remind us today that you are sitting on the throne, that you are in full control. God, it is impossible for you to be rattled. It's impossible for your uh, palms to be sweaty, for you to be nervous and unsure. God, we thank you that nothing happens that surprises you or takes you off guard, but everything is happening according to your plan and your purpose. God, help us to see that. Help us to, to trust in that. Lord, help us to worship you even as we look at this topic. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here at uh, Pennington Park Church, our normal preaching diet is to walk through books of the Bible with kind of a verse-by-verse approach. We've been doing that throughout the book of of 1 Corinthians. We're about halfway through uh, 1 Corinthians 15 right now. But occasionally, we do take uh, a few weeks of the year, and we try to address important topics. And so today, uh, I'm I'm launching a seven-week sermon series called The Last Days, where we're going to be addressing uh, the, the very important topic of eschatology. Eschatology is the study or the doctrine of the last days or the end times. And the reason why we're doing that is because not only does 1 Corinthians 15 address very explicit eschatological topics like the resurrection, like our heavenly bodies, but 1 Corinthians 15 has been filled with Paul's eschatology in nearly every chapter. Paul's arguments throughout this letter has been rooted in his own eschatology. In fact, if you're looking at, these, at, at the screen here, uh, this slide, it's in almost every chapter. Like Paul's eschatology is, is really driving his arguments. His eschatology is undergirding all that he has been saying to the Corinthians. In fact, nearly every one of the issues at the church in Corinth can be connected to their incorrect eschatology. And so as we're kind of coming to a close to the book of 1 Corinthians, I think in order for us to kind of tie all of this together, in order for us to understand really all that Paul is saying, we need a theological framework for understanding and processing topics related to eschatology. And so today, uh, we're going to be looking at really the importance of eschatology. Today, I'm really just going to lay the groundwork uh, for this series as we look at this topic the next seven weeks. I'm going to provide some basic categories and basic definitions, and really going to spend the majority of our time looking at the purpose of why we're spending the next seven weeks on uh, this topic. And then the next two weeks, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit, and I'm going to present four of the most important or, or popular views related to the end times. I'm going to provide the strengths and the weaknesses and tie in why it's practical for us today. And then we're actually going to jump back into 1 Corinthians 15 so we can correctly understand the resurrection and our heavenly bodies. And then we're going to look at the new heavens and the new earth. And then we're going to close uh, with looking at what it means to be uh, to, to wait for the Lord Jesus and to wait for him faithfully. Okay? So today, we're just looking at the importance of eschatology And there is no better way to begin an eschatology sermon series than by quoting from the Left Behind series. 
see if this rings a bell for those of you who grew up with this. Maybe you'll remember this scene. I quote, No one heard the trumpet sound, but in the twinkling of an eye, life changed irretrievably and stunningly across the entire expanse of the planet Earth. Over the Atlantic Ocean, in a Boeing 747, Captain Rayford Steele opened the cockpit door for a wee hour stroll down the aisle to check on his passengers and flirt with his senior flight attendant. But he almost crashed into that flight attendant, the lovely Miss Durham, on her way in to deliver to him a staggering newsflash. People are missing. What do you mean? Well, a whole bunch of people just gone. I've been everywhere. I'm telling you, dozens of people are missing. Their shoes, their socks, their clothes, everything was left behind. These people are gone? An elderly woman in first class, looking more than bleary-eyed, held her husband's sweater and pants in her arms. What in the world, she said. Harold? Harold was gone, evaporated into thin air or something, end quote. When you think about eschatology, what comes into your mind? When you think about the last days, the end of the world, Jesus returning, what do you tend to think about? I think within many Christian circles, the theology behind the Left Behind series seems to be a dominant way of thinking about the end times. Like there's a a sudden rapture and and the faithful Christians go up into heaven with Jesus and mad chaos ensues across planet earth, right? And so you better believe in Jesus uh, or else you're going to miss it. You're going to be left behind. You're, You're not gonna be part of the rapture. And certainly there are good things that come with that type of view. Right, it, it puts kind of this sense of urgency to make sure you believe in Jesus, make sure you're walking faithfully with him. But if you grew up like I did, kind of indoctrinated with that type of mentality, you probably had a few experiences growing up where you were by yourself and you freaked out, wondering, did I miss it? Uh, did the rapture already happen? Like I remember having that several times. And in fact, one time in particular, it scared me to death. I woke up on a Saturday morning to an empty house. And as a boy, that's kind of freaky. Like, where's mom? Where's dad? I can't find them. Can't find my brother or sister. I'm looking all over the place. And I thought, I missed it. I missed the rapture. Like, I thought I believed in Jesus, but clearly I did not, right? I'm thinking, what do I do? Like, you know, and and then I found out they were just on the front porch, just kind of hanging out in the morning, waiting for me to wake up because I was the last one to wake up. Right now, the the thing about like the theology behind uh, the Left Behind series, I think there is a danger when our understanding of eschatology is more shaped by Kirk Cameron than the Word of God. <laughs> and, and so, the the question as we think about eschatology, I, I really this morning just want to warm us up to thinking about eschatology because we hardly ever think about it or we're shaped by the Left Behind series, or even culture's way of thinking about how the end of the world will take place. 
There have been dozens uh, of movies and, and books written on this topic, uh, whether it's Independence Day, that aliens are going to kind of end the world, or the day after tomorrow, a giant snowstorm is going to end the world, or, or movies about a, a meteor is going to end the world, or a disease, or, or giant apes, or atomic bombs. There are so many different views about how the end of the world will take place. There, in fact, have been hundreds of theories about the last days, and almost every generation since Jesus ascended into heaven has believed that Jesus will return in their lifetime and came up with some sort of theory of why that is the case. But do you want to know what the worst way of thinking about the end times is? It's worse than the Left Behind series it's worse than any of those cultural examples I just listed. The worst way to think about the end times is to never think about it at all. It's to be so comfortable in this world that you never think about it, you never desire it, you never talk about it with other people because you might believe in a heaven, but the way that you live, the way that you think this world is really all that there is. If there was anything redeemable about 2020, <laughs> no, I'm on thin ice here, but if there was anything redeemable about last year, it was that it led people to think about death and living with purpose with great vigor. I can't tell you how many conversations I had with people, how many uh, uh, discussions were had, how many articles I read with people wondering, is this it? Like, is Jesus going to come back, right? I mean, thinking about the coronavirus, thinking about uh, governmental control and, and the vaccine and, and ransacked grocery stores, no toilet paper, surely this is the end. Murder hornets, right? Like, remember when that was kind of a thing? I think maybe it still is. And people are wondering just the instability of the world. Like, is this it? Is Jesus going to be returning? And I think that's an important piece in all of this because we're not the first people to ask that question. Like not only has nearly every generation asked that question, but the 12 disciples asked Jesus Christ himself that question. As they're at the Mountain of Olives in Matthew chapter 24, it says, and as he, Jesus, sat on the mountain of olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Right? This question, when will Jesus return? What will that look like? Is so important and it is so incredibly popular, even for unbelievers, and so because it's so important, because it's so popular, I want to take a moment and just basically define and talk about what is it? What is eschatology? What, what are we really talking about here? And so just kind of a basic eschatology. When you think about this word, eschatology, it's made up of two Greek terms put together. The, the first Greek term is eschaton, which means last, and then logos, which means word or study. And so when I use the word eschatology, I'm basically talking about the study or the doctrine of the last days or the end times. What is the final plan of God? 
Now, it's important to know, as we think about eschatology over the next seven weeks, there are two main categories that I'm going to be jumping um, uh, from. I'm basically going to be landing in, in both of these categories over the next couple of weeks. There's the personal, and then there's the cosmic. Personal eschatology is addressing the future of the individual person. It has a narrow, narrow view. It's dealing with issues like death, like the intermediate state, like the resurrection, like the judgment. It's answering the question, what is a person's destiny? Where will they reside in all of eternity? Okay? Cosmic eschatology is more broad. It's addressing issues uh, related to how God will deal with all of his creation as a whole. So it's dealing with issues like the rapture, like the tribulation period, the second coming of Jesus, the millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ. Deals with issues like the antichrist and the mark of the beast and the eternal state and the role of the church and the role of Israel. And yet all of those events, and what's most intriguing is the order of those events is what we're talking about when I use the word eschatology, okay? And again, my aim is to address both categories, trying to bring these together so this is as practical as possible, okay? One thing that I'm praying about is that each week, you don't walk out of this room with your head spinning because of fancy charts and, and kind of clever views. I, I want this sermon series to impact the way that you live right now. In fact, <laughs> in seminary, and, and even throughout uh, my life, I have been told and encouraged not to preach on eschatology. That people will say, that will only lead your congregation towards speculation, that will only stir up kind of a spirit of uncertainty, that may even lead to division within your church because there are so many potential views. And while I understand that, Eschatology is so important, I can't not preach on this topic. And I'm gonna be like doing my best to, to make, make sure that the plain things are the main things, but there is more to know than just the fact that Jesus wins, okay? And so um, you might be wondering, well, why are we talking about this? If this is kind of debated, if there are so many different views, and so I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about four reasons why I want us to talk about this issue right now today. And here's the first one. There is more to know than the awesome reality that Jesus wins. Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 20 and 21 says this. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is a picture of Jesus winning, of Jesus winning forever. And I wanna be very clear this morning, eschatology is supposed to fill God's people with confidence and courage and conviction because we know who wins in the end. Right? No matter how bad it gets around us in this world, no matter what things look like, we know who is victorious and his name is Jesus. Yet, when it comes to eschatology, far too many Christians are filled 
with fear, confusion, speculation, doubt, and even disinterest at the whole topic. And why is that? Like if we truly believe, if we truly know Revelation 3 is true, that Jesus wins in the end, why are so many Christians filled with confusion and fear about it? My theory is, is that we don't study this topic enough. Like we, we believe that Jesus wins in the end. We, we believe that that is enough, right? And let me be clear, it is enough. Like that is the most powerful truth that we have. Jesus is victorious forever and ever. My concern is, is that for most of the people who believe that to be true and yet don't study eschatology, they don't fully understand what that means. That Jesus wins in the end against whom? And, and when? And how? And what are the, the surrounding circumstances around Jesus's cosmic victory? Like Jesus's victory, okay, great, he wins in the end, but what role does that play in God's unfolding plan of history and redemption? See, I think better understanding those factors, the answers to those questions, deepens our belief that Jesus does win in the end. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, when I was growing up, my dad um, was trying to explain to me uh, the miracle on ice in 1980 when the USA hockey team beat Soviet Union. And he was trying to explain it to me. And I remember walking away being like, awesome, USA won. That's great. Like, good for us. And, and I had kind of this thin belief in that. I knew that they won. And, and, and my little understanding that we sent a bunch of college players over there to beat this powerhouse Soviet Union who was basically unbeatable in hockey, and my, my no understanding of, of world events and why that was such a big deal for USA to win at that time. I had no understanding of that at the time. And so I believed that USA won, but my belief in that was very thin. And, and over the years, I've learned about the surrounding circumstances that USA won, and it's deepened my appreciation and wonder that USA actually won and beat Soviet Union. Look, I think the same is true when it comes with the statement, Jesus wins in the end. That there is more to know, and by looking at what the Bible actually says in relationship to the fact that Jesus wins, will grow your appreciation for the fact that Jesus wins, and the way that you live in the present will be grounded in that victory. Look, church, you know this to be true, but for me as a preacher, I am compelled to preach the whole counsel of God, right? Acts 20, verse 27. And I am amazed at how frequently God's word actually talks about eschatology, I don't know if you knew this, but roughly one-fourth of the Bible deals with matters related to the end times. That there are over 1,800 different passages of the Bible that discuss and talk about the second coming of Jesus. 318 of them are in the New Testament. And yet we're just supposed to ignore those because they're difficult to understand? We're just supposed to maybe sidestep them because... We don't understand all of the implications. It's too divisive. Or it's just a bunch of speculation. 
Like we're just supposed to stick with, yeah, Jesus comes back and he wins in the end. Let's move on. We don't do that with any other doctrine in the faith. Like take the incarnation of Jesus, for example. We don't say, yeah, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, but we don't really know anything else. Like we don't really know if he was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. We don't really know how he grew in obedience, even though he was God. We don't know that, you know, how he died, but he was divine at the same time. Let's just stick to the fact that Jesus came. We don't do that with any other doctrine. Why do it with eschatology, something that deals with our lives that impact us forever and ever for all of eternity? Like, is there anything more important than that? And yet we're supposed to stick with the fact that Jesus wins? No, there is more to know. And if we're committed as a church to immersing ourselves in the whole counsel of God, we've got to talk about this topic, okay? That's the first reason. Second reason here is that I want this sermon series to connect our belief in the future with how to live obediently right now. I've often heard it said, why concern myself with the future? Like what's gonna happen is going to happen. Let's just stick to evangelism. Let's stick to growing in godliness. Let's just grow closer to the Lord. And on one hand, like I understand that, but the reality is, is that biblical eschatology shapes how we do all those things. Like it shapes how we live in the present. It gives us perspective and clarity about how to pursue those things. It's eschatology that, that fills the tank of passion for evangelism. It's our eschatology that helps us stay glued to the path of godliness and righteousness. And look, there's nothing that will motivate you to growing closer to the Lord than understanding that the day of the Lord is growing closer. And so eschatology may be concerned with the then, but it certainly impacts the now that what you do today is always governed by what you know will happen tomorrow. And if you know, if you trust, if you have confidence that the second coming of Jesus is guaranteed, that it's unavoidable, that it's drawing near, that no one knows the day or the hour, that belief must shape how you live right now in the presence. John Frame uh, said it this way. He says, so far as I can see, oops, missed this slide. Sorry, guys. It says, it says, so far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us to develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. Look, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth encourages us to abandon worldliness. The reality and the truth that you belong to God's eternal kingdom right now prevents us from a toxic obsession with earthly kingdoms and earthly nations. The impending and ongoing persecution against the church compels us as the people of God to stick close to one another and to the church, being ready and willing to suffer when necessary. What is done in the present is determined by what is to come in the future. 
If you came up to me after this service and you said, hey, pastor, I'm gonna come by your office tomorrow, sometime between nine and 10 in the morning. I'd love to meet with you. I said, okay, great, sounds good. Looking forward to seeing you. And then I go throughout my Sunday and I stop and I think to myself, wait, did you mean 9.15 or did you mean 9.59? Well, I didn't have that information. All I know is that you're going to be visiting me sometime soon. And for me to be responsible, I'm going to be prepared and ready for your visits. I may not know exactly the time that you're coming, but for me to be responsible, I'm not gonna schedule something else during nine and 10. I'm not gonna distract myself with something else. I'm going to be ready and prepared. Why? Because my understanding of the future is impacting the way that I live in the present. And I think there are far too many Christians whose, fut- whose understanding of the future is not impacting the way they are living right now in the present. And I think this sermon series is gonna help kind of connect those dots for us so that what happens in the future actually impacts our faithfulness and our obedience to the Lord right now, today. And then thirdly here, I think another reason to study eschatology is that this is going to ground our hope in our eternal king and not in our changing circumstances. I love Romans chapter 15, verse four. It says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Like what we read in the Bible, including texts related to eschatology, is meant to flood your heart with hope. And one of my jobs as your pastor is to prepare you for trials. That's one of my jobs up here. That's why I preach the way that I preach. And the reality is, is that you are in a storm or a storm is coming. That hardship and trial and persecution, they are coming and they are closer than you think. And I say that to you this morning, not to scare you, but to give you a correct view of reality, that we are living in a world that is growing increasingly antagonistic towards the gospel. And so my question for you this morning, and really this whole sermon series, is what makes you think that you will stand strong in the face of persecution when it comes? whether that's at work or at school or just in society in general or or based on what I preach about, as it becomes increasingly unpopular to be a Christian in our culture, who who believes every word in this book, and, and when the heat is turned up where it will actually cost you something to be a Christian in this world, what makes you think that you will persevere until the end? Like if you're, if you're a Christian because of, of the fact that it's convenience or, or because of, of just the circumstances in your life makes it easy for you to be a Christian, you will not last. And I say that lovingly, that if your hope is in your circumstances that it's easy to be a Christian, that it's basically like, yeah, being an American is being a Christian, you will not endure persecution. That the only 
individuals who will persevere in the midst of trial and persecution are the ones who ground their hope in the eternal King of Kings. And the reason why that's true is because if your hope is grounded in Jesus, that will lead you to living a life of boldness, courage, conviction, and perseverance, no matter the cost. That eschatology is proof that the outcome is secure. That the Bible gives us these these pictures and these promises of Jesus's cosmic rule, of his unshakable reign, of his dominion that will last forever and ever. The Bible gives us those promises and those pictures so that we might be freed up from living in fear right now. And we might live with boldness and courage no matter the cost. See, eschatology has a practical implication to it. Eschatology frees us up so that we can suffer well as followers of Jesus, so that we can share the gospel with the lost, so that we can endure rejection, so that we can kill sin in our lives, no matter the cost. Why? Because in Jesus's kingdom, we are more than conquerors because of Jesus. Because in Jesus's kingdom, he will come back. And when he comes back, he will make everything new, everything right. And he will reign with perfect justice, righteousness, power, and authority forevermore. And so if you believe that, and if you ground your hope in that, you will be an unstoppable Christian who lives without fear, who lives with courage and boldness and conviction, not because you are those things, but because Jesus is those things and your hope is rooted in him. Look, if you're a follower of Jesus where your hope is grounded in King Jesus, fear should never be a consistent or dominant reality in your life. And though it may not seem like it, eschatology is not meant to be a subject that we debate intellectually. Eschatology is given to us to remind us that we have an unshakable hope in the one who will make all things right and who has a plan to do just that. That the the God of the Bible presents himself as one who is fully in control from the beginning to the end. I love Isaiah chapter 46. God says this, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's the God that we put our hope in. And yet sadly, even for Christians, their concern for the present world too often smothers their interest in the world to come. Like you've heard that expression, don't be too heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. You heard that before? Like I don't know anybody where that's true. Like we have the opposite issue. Like A.W. Tozer says that the weakness of so many modern Christians is that they feel too much at home in the world. And C.S. Lewis, I think he counsels us correctly here. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do 
it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. I know for me, understanding that this is not my home, that I'm just passing through, helps to disentangle my heart from this world. It helps break this enchantment that I have with this world. And I think studying eschatology, putting these vital truths in front of our hearts and our minds will help us see past this world and long for heaven as we ought. Like my prayer is that this sermon series shows us how eschatology can prepare our hearts for eternity. Like my prayer is that you would be an eternally minded Christian so that whatever happens in this world, your hope in God is unshakable. And no matter what happens, no matter what news you get from the doctor, what news you get from a family member or from an employer or, or what you see on the news, that your hope in God is unshakable. Because it's Jesus who said, fear not, have peace, for I have overcome the world. And so I think this series is going to teach us what it looks like to ground our hope in the eternal king. And then finally, the last, I think, reason to study this is to deepen our love and our worship for Jesus. Again, this is not going to be like a seminary class over the next seven weeks where you start to doze off because we get so lost in the weeds. But one of the most important things about our eschatology is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. My goal is not to fill your mind with clever charts, the right dates, the correct views. If you're expecting me to give you the right formula to determine the day and the hour that Jesus comes back, you will be disappointed. No, I want... I want your heart inflamed with a passion for King Jesus. That's what I want. I want you to understand that all of history, that God's plan, the goal is to exalt Jesus above all else. I want you to know more of the one whose second coming fulfills a divine plan that is more ancient than time itself that yes, we're gonna look at some of those views and, and some of those charts, but the goal here of eschatology is primarily to put on display the infinite worth and treasure of Jesus Christ. Look, I know we all, we all long for a world that is freed from sin, from evil, from tyranny, from injustice, from pandemics. Like we ache for our human bodies to no longer be subjected to the curse of sin, death, and decay. Like we wait for the curse to be reversed. We wait for the spell of sin to be lifted. And yet it's eschatology that reminds us that Jesus Christ himself will accomplish all of those things and more. And so at the center of our eschatology must be an all-sufficient savior, savior who will bring a global kingdom who will bring paradise, a type of paradise that we all crave and yet have yet to taste. 
fact, Russell Moore, I love this quote by him. He kind of brings us into perspective about eschatology. He says that the overarching story with a beginning, a middle, and an end makes sense of all of the smaller stories of our individual lives. In scripture, the eschaton is not simply tacked on to the gospel at the end. It is instead the vision toward which all of scripture is pointing and the vision that grounds the hope of the gathered church and the individual believer. The future has a name, Jesus of Nazareth. Like all doctrines of the faith, eschatology is the outworking of Christology or the study of Christ. That God's final purpose with his creation is to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. That God's entire plan of history is centered on Jesus. Everything is about him. And my hope is that this sermon series teaches us more about how to view Jesus rightly, how to love him deeper, and how to worship him with greater vision. Because the passages that we are going to look at throughout this series do not highlight the mercy of Jesus or the compassion of Jesus or the the niceness of Jesus. The passages that we will see highlight the power of Jesus, the toughness of Jesus and his might. Passages like this in in Revelation where it says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse at the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of kings and Lord of lords. (laughs) What a picture of Jesus, right? When you think about Jesus, when I think about Jesus, is that the image that comes to our minds? Usually not. And so this sermon series is going to help us to put away the unbiblical view of Jesus as him being soft, as him being a weak pushover, And it will give us a correct view of Jesus as the almighty king of kings who's wearing clothes dipped in blood, dripping in blood, whose eyes are like fire, whose mouth a sword is coming out and has a tattoo on his thigh who will decimate evil once and for all and will reign forever and ever. So I'm excited for the next couple of weeks. You can pray for me as I prepare and as we look at some of these difficult passages, but I want your heart to rejoice at King Jesus who is on the throne. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we do praise you that you are on the throne, that there is no one like you. Jesus, we thank you that you hold the keys of victory. God, that evil is no match for you 
that Satan will be bound forever and ever, that you will make all things new. So God, help us to worship you rightly, to, to see you as you are. God, you are not wimpy. You are not soft. You are strong and mighty. God, we worship you as our king, and we pray that our view of you would fill us with boldness and courage today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.